and welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. This show is presented to you by Gaslowitz Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our new website at gaslowitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts are Millie Bombush and Robert Port, and today we're talking about strategies for transferring or sharing the family vacation home. And now it's time to introduce our guests. We are pleased to have with us today Cynthia Duncan, a shareholder in the Bowden Spratt Law Firm, and Frank Norton Jr., a real estate broker and CEO of the Norton Agency. Let me get each of you to introduce yourselves to our audience. Let me start with uh, you, Cynthia, if you'll tell us uh, a little bit about yourselves and uh, the area in which you practice. Sure. Um, I have been in the estate planning field for over 14 years. Our firm has seven attorneys, three paralegals, and we focus exclusively on trust and estates work. So we're doing wealth transfer strategies. We're doing um, business, family business succession. We're doing governance premarital, charitable giving, um, estate, and gift tax controversies. Great. Thank you. And Frank, tell us a little bit about uh, your business. I am a third-generation manager of a family business based in Gainesville, Georgia, real estate and insurance. I've been in the real estate business for 38 years. Uh, 25% of our real estate volume is vacation homes, either in, in and around Lake Lanier or in the North Georgia mountains. And so we are very familiar with families buying their second home and enjoying that benefit of their wealth. Today, we're going to talk about how to share or or transfer the family vacation home in two respects, the the legal aspects of that and also some practical considerations. Uh, But beyond that, maybe let's start with an overview um, on another dynamic. Um, How do you balance the financial and the emotional considerations that are going on just in general, with families when it comes to their vacation homes? Which seems to get the most attention? Well, first, the majority of the people who are buying vacation homes don't have a mortgage. So they're buying it all cash. Whether uh, And prior to the latest recession, people were buying mansions on the mountains. And today, more, they're more like buying a cabin in the woods uh, in terms of value and pricing. But we see a lot of movement and vacation homes, at least in our area, that would be in the three hundred dollars to $600,000 range. And they are paying for it out of their money market accounts. And so there's not the burden of um, a financial mortgage on much of what we're selling. And I think that evens things out. But people are using houses more and more, creating family memories, whereas uh, a a timeshare might be only used two weeks a year. We're seeing houses in our region uh, being used 16 to 20 times a year. Big holidays, but also because our region is so close to Metro Atlanta and the six million six million people that live here, there's there's an easy way of escaping. We also see a, a very strong interest in millennials who are escaping Atlanta for the mountains during taking Friday off or leaving early on Friday. And the juxtaposition of difference of, of the mountain region and the adventure that a mountain region has and the urban lifestyle of Atlanta. So I think that trend is going to continue, at least certainly their interest. They may not be able to 
afford them, hoping their parents will afford them. But we're seeing more and more people use their vacation cottages on a more frequent basis. What about you, Cynthia? Your clients, do they seem to be more interested in the financial aspects of it or the emotional idea of this is a family vacation home? I think both. And I think that they need to be aware of both of those considerations when they come to us. Because what we're, whereas Frank um, is dealing with the original owner, we're helping the original owner decide how they're going to transfer that property down to younger generations. And so the questions that we're asking are, you know, how should it be owned? Who should control it? And who pays for it? So, you know, we're dealing with both the emotional ties um, in terms of and family dynamics in terms of who controls it. How it's going to be owned is really going to be driven in ter- with um, what the client, how the client answers those questions and who pays for it after the initial owner, you know, that's where it gets tricky. So obviously there's less to worry about in terms of fi- family dynamics going downhill to the extent there are assets there to continue to support the expenses associated with the property after mom and dad no longer own it. So Cynthia, you've talked about different aspects of this. And as I've thought about this uh, topic, it seems to me we have very practical considerations, usage, payment for the property. And then we have how we address that, if you will, in a legal way. So maybe let's talk a little bit about each of those topics. Let's talk first maybe about the practical issues that are presented with a family vacation home that the parents presumably or perhaps now own and want to pass it on to their children. Frank, what do you see in terms of how, just setting aside legal issues, what what are the issues that arise when people want to do that? Well, when there's um, multiple users of a property, it's used differently. Um, One buys the cord of firewood and the next one burns it up. (laughs) <laughs> so who who replenishes the the basic needs? And then the more it's used, where we're seeing, you know, if you're using something 12, 16, 24 times a year, then there becomes wear and tear of that vacation house. Something gets broken or some uh, it's going to need painting. It's going to need care. And when you have multiple users, there's going to be squabbling or pettiness about the care of that house. Somebody rearranged the furniture and didn't range it back. And somebody moved uh, this set of furniture around and, and redecorated because they liked it better. Those are the kinds of control things that I, that I see in this multiple, multiple user vacation home. Um, and I think that transcends into multiple families. And I think that that's why we always recommend to our clients that before when everyone's still feeling great about the fact that they've just inherited this property from their parents, to go ahead and at that point sit down and really come up with as detailed as possible house rules, a set of house rules. So it's going to address all the things that Frank talked about and more. You know, we've seen with the hunting plantation, the house rules prohibit dogs over a certain weight from um, hanging out on the front porch. So it really is the more detailed you can get with these things, the better. Um, so we've seen them address what are the protocols for check-in and check-out. Um, we've seen, um, you know, kind of a petty cash fund that the family maintains for the things that Frank's talking about. So that when you do burn the firewood, you, you, there's $50, you know, for the next family to, to replenish that. You know, other things that we always recommend are 
setting up some kind of scheduling protocol, especially a lot of these homes have preferred times for visits. And um, so there's different ways that the families approach that. Sometimes it's, you know, first come, first serve. Sometimes it's a rotating schedule for those preferred times. Sometimes that's where kind of the benefit of the sweat equity comes in, that the family member that's actually dealing with the emergency calls with respect to the property gets first pick for that season in terms of when they're able to use it. Um, so there, there are a lot of things that the family can do. Um, and it, it really ranges in terms of formality. So a lot of families get together, you know, once or twice a year at that property. And that's where they kind of have their family meeting. Others have something, um, you know, they may have corporate backgrounds. They like something a little more structured. So they treat it more like their business and they have scheduled conference calls where these issues are raised. You know, the roof needs repair. Let's get that out there and talk about it before people are surprised. So we've seen, you know, a lot of success with annual budgets being distributed where there are scheduled contribution times um, so that you're not surprised that, you know, we decided, you know, last Thanksgiving, we're going to go ahead and put the new roof on. So there are a lot of things that you can implement to kind of keep open communication um, to hopefully um, avoid, avoid those types of disputes. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts, Millie Bombush and Robert Port from the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. We're discussing strategies for transferring or sharing the family vacation home with Cynthia Duncan, a shareholder in the Bowden Spratt Law Firm, and Frank Norton Jr., a real estate broker and CEO of the Norton Agency. Cynthia, let's talk a little bit about the legal structures or the different legal approaches you can take with respect to a family vacation home. Right. So, you know, typically a lot of mom and dad will already have the property in an LLC just for liability reasons, some soft asset protection. And for our listeners who may not know what an LLC is, can you give us the uh, short version? Yes, a limited liability company. So that is a legal entity that is governed by what's called an operating agreement, which is really where all the kind of rules are that govern that entity. It has its own separate account. um, It's a separate taxpayer Um, But why we like it and why we use it so much in our practice is that it's a very flexible structure and it really enables you to customize the rules for the assets that will be owned by that limited liability company. Um, So the tools that we use are the limited liability company. Um, We typically would use that where we want to provide more flexibility for future generations, um, provide an exit strategy for the children to the extent that they don't get along and decide that they no longer want to own this property together. For the client that really sees this as ownership that's going to hopefully go beyond the children. So we're talking about keeping the family home in some kind of structure um, for grandchildren as well. We may recommend um, that client exploring a trust. So the the family home would actually be owned by a trust, which um, is typically going to be irrevocable, which means the rules are not going to be able to be changed very easily by the children and grandchildren. So that's very attractive to some clients. It also both enables you to do this, but it just kind of depends on how far you want to go on the continuum of control. But the LLC allows you to kind of bifurcate control from ownership. You can provide for voting units and non-voting units. 
You can give the voting units to a particular child and the non-voting units, you know, among all of your children. You accomplish that at the trust level by naming, you know, you get to pick and choose who the trustee is going to be. Um, and so the trustee is the one in the trust context that's going to be making investment decisions. And the owners of the voting units in the limited liability company are the ones that are going to be making decisions with the underlying assets of the limited liability company. So it, it seems to me on a very simplistic basis that what you're suggesting essentially is that the family treat this asset almost as a separate entity, separate and apart, and it has its own rules, it has its own legal documents, and its own governing structure. Is that fair? Correct. Correct. We're trying to provide some form of structure beyond simply establishing a bank account where everyone contributes. Um, and how formal you get with that structure and how detailed you are in terms of what's going to happen in the future and how much control you're going to give your children and grandchildren in determining their own destiny um, is really the client's decision. And like I said, the LLC, the limited liability company route is typically for the client that wants to provide more flexibility, doesn't want to govern from the grave, whereas the trust typically is not going to provide as much flexibility. We see in our practice, because we do estate litigation, we see a fair number of wills that leave a family vacation home to my children in equal shares. Um, that's pretty simple. We're not setting up a trust. We're not setting up another entity. You've got three or four kids. You just leave the home all to them, and the executor issues an executor's deed, and they simply own it. What are the? It seems simple, but what are the downsides to that? One lives in California. One lives on Lake Lanier, three, do three doors down from the vacation house, and one lives in New York. And so you're not going to have equal use, uh, equal responsibility, equal caretaking. Um, and that sets up, from a real estate brokerage standpoint, a sale. <laughs> so, so it's a business opportunity. Yes. <laughs> sure. I think, I think when you see that, it's basically the mom and dad have made the decision that they are going to let the children work out how formal the structure is going to be. Because what we see is then the children come to us and say, okay, we've just inherited this family vacation home. What do we do with it? And we say, well, we'd recommend you go ahead and transfer that to an LLC and let's talk about what you want to see happen under these various scenarios. What happens if you need a repair, a capital improvement, and not everyone wants to contribute their one-third interest. What do you want to happen? Do you want it to be treated as a loan from the other from the, from your siblings? And if the property is ever sold, you're basically paying back that loan out of the proceeds. Do you want it to dilute your interest? Do you want to be able to see how it works for a couple of years? But if you really aren't using it because you're in California and your other two siblings are using it, you know, every other weekend. Do you want some kind of exit strategy? And let's all decide on that now. Those rules are written into the terms of the operating agreement for the limited liability company. And if it comes, if, if the point in time comes when the California sibling says, you know what, this isn't worth my time or money, I want out, we'll typically have a provision in the operating agreement that provides that child with a liquidation right, which basically is, hey, I'm offering to sell my share to the two of you. And if you don't buy it, then the terms of the operating agreement provide that the family home is sold and the, you know, the proceeds are distributed. So that's the ultimate exit strategy. And it gives everyone kind of a lot of power. Um, whereas if the family, if, the, if mom and dad don't want that, then they're going to put it in a trust and the rules are written. But I think, I think that whether mom and dad does it 
Now it's going to be done at some point, whether by the children or whether by mom and dad. So it's really just how much control mom and dad want to have over what that structure looks like in the future. And Frank, do you, do you see that typically that if one of the family members wants out, the other family members have the first right of refusal? And do they usually buy it? They do. They do. Because they, they have developed, a because of the proximity, a closer personal relationship with that house. And so they don't want to give that up just because a sibling in California wants to sell. And so uh, at that point, they may go in and get a short-term loan so that they can't, usually they don't have a a third of the value of the house. And um, those loans are are fairly available, especially when you have so much equity in the other Mm -hmm. two-thirds. Cynthia, talk a little bit more about exit strategies, because we often see in our practice LLCs, which make it very difficult for people to get out. And we often have to sort of pull a nuclear option, which is ask a court to dissolve the LLC. And what you've said suggests to me that you have included in there, in the doc, some of the documents you do, options that force people to make a decision. What, what other strategies do you have for allowing people to get out of things that may not be working out or, or you know, they just don't have an interest in? And I think that Well, there are two ways. There was the kind of at one end of the spectrum is this liquidation right that forces basically a right of first refusal with respect to the other owners of the limited liability company. But we also um, kind of balance power so that no one feels trapped through how the entity is controlled and what voting thresholds are required to take certain actions. So if you want to make it easy for the property to sell, then you're going to say, you know, majority vote. If you want to make it hard, for the property to be sold, you're going to say two-thirds are unanimous. So we tinker with voting thresholds a lot to strike that balance between how hard is it going to be to basically liquidate this LLC. We do something similar in the trust context. I feel like I've given the trust a bad name here to say that it's, that it's inflexible because it can be a very flexible arrangement as well. When the trust is established, it's contemplated that it's going to own you know, one or more properties for the long term. But to the extent it doesn't, you don't want to tie the fam- the children together in one trust, right? It's got to be one trust that owns the home. But when the home is not the asset anymore and you've got investment assets in there now, you don't want one trust for multiple generations. So our trust agreements, anyone's trust agreement can provide that at that point in time, the trust either go ahead and distributes out per stirpes to the descendants or it divides into separate trusts. And so... Either, either scenario, either um, legal tool can provide a lot of flexibility, but it's really done through how the decisions are made. And then in the LLC context, what we do include often when the client says they want flexibility and they don't want the children to feel trapped, because oftentimes if you don't feel trapped, you're going you're gonna to stay in the situation, you're going to stay in the, the structure longer, um, is, this, is this right of liquidation. Frank, you're in real estate. Real estate generally involves, any developed real estate generally involves expenses, maintenance, new roofs, property taxes, the HVAC goes out. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about how in the context of a vacation home being passed to uh, next generation or beyond, how do we deal with those costs? Well, first, uh, the original owner 
the, the parents that own the house have already probably set up connections with either professional property manager, professional repair maintenance person, and so there's service personnel. Now, that that will change over time as well because uh, as the service personnel retire, um, but there needs to always be some caretakers of that facility. Um, we've, we've furnished that service for, for a number of clients on Lake Lanier, and there are a number of our fine services that will cut your water off and cut your water on, winterize your properties. But there needs to be a sinking fund. In my view, there needs to be a sinking fund established up front as part of that agreement uh, between the siblings and so that there's money available um, over a period of time to replace a roof most likely every 10 years. Update a kitchen, which is a huge expense, probably every 20, 25 years. Appliances go out. Hot water heaters last some seven to eight years. Heating and air systems need to be upgraded or they're going to end up being replaced every 15 years. And these are big items. It's more than just recovering the couch in the living room, which probably needs to be done occasionally as well. And so the the normal repair and maintenance, um, we like we like to see a, a sinking fund, much treating it as an investment. Um, we own a number of rental houses, and we establish a sinking fund for those and part of our rent. In this case, there wouldn't be any rent, but but a sinking fund up front. And so there may be, in the case of a family owning, that there's an annual contribution whether it's needed or not. Almost like uh, condominium dues or something like that. Exactly, exactly. And do you have, based on your experience, any suggestion as to the amount that ought to be put in something like that? Obviously, it's dependent on the location and the home and the age of the home. But if people are thinking about doing this, are we talking about, you know, $10,000 or are we talking about a hundred? Well, um, I'm familiar with, I own a, uh, a rental house and I sort of calculated what my annual costs are and it works out to be about $25,000. Now that's, um, that's utilities and uh, taxes, insurance for that house. That's probably not the sinking fund uh, to repaint this house every four years. It's an old farmhouse. And um, so there needs to be, but the basic costs, there, you have some basic costs and taxes go continue to go up. Insurance is going up. You have to insure a vacation house as a high insurance class than a personal residence because of the infrequency of use. And so maybe 5%, 5 to 7% of the value of the house might cover all of those items. I'd have to dissect it. It is house by house by house. Right, right. But I, I think I think some benchmarks like that are helpful for folks. Now, you, you've mentioned a sinking fund, and that's a phrase that people often use. And I'm not sure... Some people, I think, view it differently. When you say a sinking fund, what what's your definition of that? So in a commercial operation, uh, office building, you know you're going to have some ongoing costs. And they're going to be um, the replacement of a roof, the replacement of a boiler. And so a sinking fund is an established fund on an annual basis where you've placed money in escrow or, or in an escrow account to be used at some later date. You need to be figuring your account needs to figure out how basically to handle that uh, from a tax standpoint, but that there's a reserve fund sinking or reserve fund for when that commercial building needs a new boiler. The same thing 
can apply to a vacation home because you are going to have some larger expenses. It's it's easy to replace to uh, repair um, a, a faucet or to fix uh, put new um, coolant in the HVAC. Those are minor ordinary expenses that you would consider year to year to year to year. But it's when you have to replace that heating and air system, the condenser, that's $4,500. Is there enough money in there to replace that condenser? So you've suggested that there could be uh, a requirement of an annual contribution by the folks who are beneficiaries of this property. Wouldn't there be also another way to do it by uh, support the uh, sinking fund by setting aside some income-producing property or investments to provide that cash as well. So I have a second home. Uh, It's a farmhouse in the mountains, and I sort of uh, referred to it earlier. And um, my wife and I hope to pass it on to our children. It's in our will. Uh, It's passed on. And what we are uh, looking at is a structure where not only is it passed, but there is an income-producing, some of our rental houses, go to match that in that same entity so that there is an endowment created and so that our three children don't have to come up out of pocket uh, to handle the repair and maintenance of a house that's 120 years old. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts, Millie Baumbush and Robert Port from the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. We're discussing strategies for transferring or sharing the family vacation home with Cynthia Duncan, a shareholder in the Bowden Spratt Law Firm, and Frank Norton Jr., a real estate broker and CEO of the Norton Agency. We were just talking about establishing a sinking fund, as you call it, a reserve to take care of um, the expenses. If a set of adult children who inherit this home or get this home, if they're not fortunate enough to have parents who have endowed the sinking fund, um, and there are, suppose there are three or four children, but they all are in different socioeconomic you know, levels. They have different earning capacity and different abilities to contribute to this. How do you typically account for that? It would be ideal if they all contributed the same amount every year, 10 or 20,000, whatever it is. But what if they just can't do that? Right. So that's obviously ideal because it keeps the ownership even between, between the three children. But if that's not going to be the case, then there are a couple of ways that I've seen that handled in the operating agreement. So one is that the children that are willing and financially able to make the contribution, make the contribution, and then the other child gets diluted. And it hopefully takes a long, long time before they get diluted to the point where they're no longer an owner. I've also seen those capital contributions from some, but not all children are treated as loans. I think that that's something that the parents need to think long and hard about before they put the property in a structure that doesn't provide exit strategies if they know on the front end that the kids are in different financial situations. What about the concept of sweat equity? I think you used that phrase early on in our discussion. Um, Have you ever seen a situation where the child who doesn't have the financial ability to contribute as much, that's the child who maybe is on site and managing things and taking care of the cleanup and essentially working? Absolutely. And that's definitely, that's another way to handle it if you're lucky enough that the one that doesn't have the the financial means is the one that's closest. Um, you know, you can, you can really slice and dice the roles that the children are going to play with respect to the property. So I've seen, um, if you've got a child, if you are, if you are lucky enough to have 
other assets in addition to the family vacation home. So the endowment. I've seen situations where one child who's financially savvy, maybe, you know, that may be their profession, has been named as the investment manager. And another child who's really hands-on with the property has been named as the property manager. And those are ways also to, to kind of shift compensation to a child who's maybe the property manager, can take a salary with respect to that or some kind of receive some kind of compensation. So there's a lot of ways that, that you can work it out. But I, I do think the sweat equity, if you're able to swap time, if your siblings go along with that, then that's a great way to handle it. So there's one other way that may be able to offset some of this reserve fund. I am aware of another uh, older house uh, in Highlands, North Carolina, that the family has kept that house now four or five generations. It looks from our, uh, our standpoint, it's been fairly well cared for up until recently. And now it's for rent on a VRBO. And so when we inquire, it has some now rental capability that is offsetting the long, uh, offsetting the annual expense of that. That also is a complicated family decision, is that the California guy wants to rent, the folks that are local don't really like the rentals, so there's going to have to be some sort of mechanism there. But VRBO has changed the way we look at vacation houses. And while you're using it 16 times a year, it's not used the rest of the year. And do you allow some rental? And also there's some tax implications on that. But And just, uh, excuse me, just for our listeners. VRBO the, is vacation rental by owner. There's home away. There's a variety of other services that provide weekend rentals. At that point, you have some other complicated things. You have owner closets and you have somebody has to change the sheets and do the laundry and keep the house clean. But the revenue is about 60 to 70 percent of the rental amount will flow back to the homeowner. And that's a pretty significant revenue source for vacation rentals. Cynthia, I'm, vacation won- homes. I'm wondering whether in the agreements you've done there, this has been anticipated. Either there's a prohibition on renting out or a express allowance, or it's not mentioned in which event, presumably all of the members, or if it's a trust, the trustee would have to exercise their discretion appropriately to do that. Right. We have authorized, we try not to write anything too specific into the agreement or into the trust agreement. We try to just give people authority to set the parameters. So under the trust agreement, we'd give the trustee the ability to provide rules for use. And so that could cover things like, you know, rentals. It could also cover things like, whereas the trust endowment is going to cover kind of baseline expenses, maintenance. Um, to the extent one beneficiary is using the property more than others, there would be user fees that would be implemented. So that's that's another way to kind of equalize or make things fair. In the operating agreement context, same thing. We're giving the manager or whether it's just the manager of everything or the property manager the right to come up with rules with respect to rentals. I do feel like that there's been a shift recently um, in the past several years where clients are more open to opening up their home to rentals, I think. Um, so I think that's a good thing. I think we're, one issue that I've seen happen is that certain family members will reserve their time, which takes the property out of the rental pool, and then not actually go and use the property for their reserve time, which really upsets those members of the family that are counting on that revenue stream. 
So I think, again, you know, constantly revisiting your house rules will go a long way to prevent those types of things. You mentioned um, earlier, Frank, that insurance, of course, is different for a vacation home than a home that's your full-time residence. When you rent a home, does that change the insurance as well? Um, it does uh, to some degree, but most uh, most of the insurance is already covered. You do have some extra higher liability, um, some risk of what that tenant might do or fall. So there is some additional riders that need to be placed on that if you do rent. What about if you've got vacation homes that come with all kinds of um, bells and whistles and gadgets like a ma- mountain bikes or, you know, ATVs or jet skis? Um, how does that change the dynamic in terms of using all that stuff, whether the, the family uses it or renters use it, and in terms of liability? You're rolling your eyes. Yeah, I am rolling my eyes. For those um, who are not looking I, at the podcast. <laughs> yes, I have a face for radio. I would discourage uh, higher end toys, ATVs, and for, for even a family home. I think that um, it, it causes, um, there's an issue of training and training uh, and age restrictions and those kinds of things on jet skis and ATVs. I think that probably should really be outside and, and kept from a liability standpoint, but also uh, a parental guidance standpoint um, for the use of those. But bicycles, um, we've rented a number of vacation rentals and they do come with bikes. No one wants to ride those bikes. Um, And so I think those personal items are probably uh, disposable from, from that nature and that I don't know how to handle all of that legally. I think, right. I think that once to the extent you start to have, you know, you you maintain a boat or something like that. I mean, you really start to get into, do we need to have all of our guests sign waivers and, how good are our waivers? And so that really does open up a whole nother can of worms. And would, would you suggest that a boat, you know, if, if if someone has a property at Lake Lanier, one would expect usually a boat to be associated with that. Would would someone, would you suggest that the boat be held by the LLC or held by the trust? Um, how, how do you approach that? Right. I mean, it may be that the actual the, the the boat isn't in the LLC or the trust that that really is separate and apart and you kind of limit the liability to the owner of that boat and you let that owner deal with it that particular family member deal with it and set the rules and everything so that it doesn't become this joint liability among all of the members because like yeah, Frank said even if you're setting rules if you're not the one there enforcing those rules you know you're opening yourself up I love the idea of house rules, and I think the part of that house rules is how the house is being used, how the toys are being used, and um, age restriction. But then again, who is governing that house rules? You you let uh, your um, college-age son use the house uh, on Lake Lanier, and there is a fraternity house party. Right, and are there consequences to a violation of the house rules, too? I mean, a lot of folks, they have these great house rules, but there aren't any consequences that people have agreed to. So there's really no teeth in the house right. rules. You so. need an enforcement mechanism. Correct, correct. Have you seen any kinds of enforcement mechanisms that we could suggest? <laughs> I've seen one. It wasn't, It wasn't. I didn't think it was very, the teeth weren't very sharp, but it, you basically lost your ability, kind of you lost your rotation in the scheduling, it was, there were, for this particular home, there were very preferred times to stay. And so if you violated any of the rules, and I think most of it came from, 
you invited too many guests. This particular family was having a problem with some of the members inviting too many guests beyond the capacity that they had set forth in the house rules. And so that family lost for a year their kind of like stature in the rotation. They're very, families are very hesitant to put anything in there that seems too draconian. But I think they can always write, if, if, you're, if one of your rules is reassess the rules and adopt new rules each year, then you can always amp it up if necessary, depending on how much respect is shown to those house rules during the prior year. And you see what's working and Correct. what's not working. Correct. And where you need to refocus and, and, and kind of flesh them out a little bit more. Right. One, one overall question, too, when we're talking about transferring a, a family home to another generation, um, the other generation generally comes with spouses um, and with sometimes second spouses, occasionally third or fourth. They come with children. Uh, they come with stepchildren. What is, what is the structure that you see for transferring it? Do we transfer it by bloodlines? Do we account for spouses and all these other put together family members? So typically, um, if you want to maintain this concept of bloodline and and ownership by bloodline, not necessarily use, but ownership, um, then you typically go the, the trust route and the beneficiaries of that trust would be the descendants of mom and dad. With the LLC, the way you accomplish that is through transfer restrictions. So in the operating agreement, there would be a concept of what constitutes a permitted transferee. And that gives you the opportunity to say, okay, it's only descendants, it's trust for descendants. Sometimes um, if, if the clients want to be more inclusive, they'll include trust for spouses of descendants. Um, now that doesn't mean, so that again, that deals with ownership. It doesn't deal with use. So the fact that son owns a piece of the LLC or is a beneficiary of the trust doesn't mean that he's, of course, not going to bring a spouse to use the property, but at least you've gotten legal control and ownership um, restricted to descendants. And Frank, do you typically, what what happens, what, what do you typically see when, you know, suppose the unfortunate happens and there are two children who have inherited the house, the children, one of them with the bloodline, um, has passed away. So now we have left the spouse, but we have left also the grandchildren. I can speak again from personal experience, and and uh, our our um, house will be passed on by bloodline. Accommodate some use because you want to. Bloodline also might be the children of your brother who's passed, and so you want to be able to pass that through. But if um, we try not to complicate things too much, and I think that's one of the things you can't think about all of the circumstances when you're passing a vacation home on to the next generation. You can't envision all of the circumstances and the change in technology and the change in lifestyle and patterns. And and so there needs to be an exit strategy and a buyback. And in case of a couple of cases, I, I'm aware that the other two end up buying out the, the, the uh, spouse of the, the deceased brother. Mm-hmm. And that may be the easiest solution. We also deal with, you know, as ownership spreads out on lower generations. Um, so you're, you start out with three owners of the LLC and eventually you have 20 owners of the LLC and how's that going to work and how decisions are made. At that point, one of the things that's great about the limited liability company is if you do have voting and non-voting, you can transfer those voting units to a trust and you can have representation from each family line in the form of trustees with respect to that trust. So that's one way we handle kind of planning, whereas you can't think of everything in the future, you can at least set up a structure that acknowledges the fact that, wow, at some point we're going to have 50 owners, but we can't have 50 decision makers. So there are three bloodlines 
So we're going to have a representative from each of those bloodlines and each is going to have a one third vote. And so then, you know, at least you have, you feel like as, you know, the great grandchild, at least you have some kind of representation when it comes to decision making with respect to that property. Right. And you've set it up so that there will be a decision made somehow. Correct. Well, thank you both for a great discussion. Uh, Before we close, we'd like each of you to provide your contact information, website, social media, hashtag, or whatever else you'd want to provide to our listeners who might want to know more about uh, your firm uh, uh, and the uh, business or practice you have. Frank? So uh, our website is uh, www dot go norton go norton dot com it'll link uh, you to all our services uh, my um, email address is probably the easiest way to reach me it's fknjr my initials fknjr at go norton dot com i'm based in gainesville my office is a car that goes between all our 19 offices um, and so those are probably the best ways of getting in touch with me and you can find more about find out more about the Balanced Brad Law Firm by going to www.bslf.com. And there's bios of all of our attorneys, about our practice areas, and um, contact information for all of us on the website. Well, thank you very much. Uh, and thank you to everyone for listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. For more information about Gaslowitz Frankel, please go to our website at gaslowitzfrankel.com. And remember to follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute Dispute and use our show's hashtag Wealth Matters. Our guests today were Cynthia Duncan, a shareholder in the Bowden Spratt Law Firm, and Frank Norton Jr., a real estate broker and CEO of the Norton Agency. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 a.m. here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X. Mm-hmm.